Progressive presents Get Pumped. Inspiration to help you do insurance stuff. Okay, time out. You're going to let your budget be the boss of you? Take control with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay for car insurance, and we'll help you find options that fit your budget. Here's some music to get you pumped. I hear your budget laughing at you. Oh, wait, that's just those kids laughing at me. Ignore them! Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Too busy to cook? Don't want a grocery shop? Take back your life. Let witnessing nature and food provide you and your family with eco-conscious, organic, tasty, nutritious meals. Headed by internationally trained chef Jennifer Johnson, you will enjoy the helpful food your body craves. Choose from meal prep, meal plans, catering, or cooking class services. Just go to witnessingnature.net. Witnessingnature.net. It's what's in the food that matters. Eat organic. Witnessing nature in everything. Good morning and welcome to our Food to Love podcast. I am Chef Jennifer with Witnessing Nature and Food. I am dedicated to building a health as wealth community so we can all live happy, healthy, fulfilled lives. My company, Witnessing Nature and Food, is deliberate in using distinct ingredients, organically grown, and cleanly made in all aspects of our food delivery as well as education. We help understand and shift our relationship with healthy food through food services, educational seminars, and cooking classes. We promote locally sourced, organic, sustainable food, providing you and your community with a fantastic experience for all of your celebration needs. After all, as communities, we tend to commune the best over and around food, so it should be food to love. Today, my guest is an amazing man who I met through my membership at the Arizona Green Chamber. I love to listen to his vast knowledge, and I could speak to him all day, and I cannot wait for you him too. So here we go. Dr. Jordan Brooks, the PhD in Life and Fisheries from the School of Renewable Natural Resources at the University of Arizona and is an established social, environmental, economic, and political leader and a business consultant. A powerful public speaker, he is an award-winning writer and editor with a number of scientific and popular publications, including two of Phoenix's First sustainability-focused magazines, Southwest Green and NXT Horizon. As a graduate student in the 80s, Dr. Brooks was part of the first class of Ebony Magazine's 30 Under 30 series and has been quoted in Black Enterprise Magazine for his knowledge of the new green economy. More than 300,000 people have seen his recent grandma was video. He was a co of the a community aquaculture of tilapia, which is our fish, uh, vegetables, fruit, and giant freshwater prawns. He is a frequent writer and contributor to the Arizona Republic newspaper on issues including green jobs, water, diversity, and community awareness. He's the first executive director of the Arizona Commission on African American Affairs for the Arizona Governor Janet Napolitano, the current president of the University of California system. 
wasn't he was an active member in the board of directors of the Greater Phoenix Black Chamber of Commerce and a chair of the board of directors of the South Minister Social Service Agency. Member of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity, he is a former member of the governing board of Arizona's largest high school district, the Phoenix Phoenix Union. He's a former member of the board of directors for the Central Arizona Project, an organization that provides water from the Colorado River to Central Arizona. He is currently the vice chair of the South Mountain Village Planning Community, part of the Phoenix Planning Commission, and vice chair of the Plan Phoenix Community that is writing the new city of Phoenix General Plan. Through Right Track, he is currently in partnership with the Environmental Protection Agency, Mesa Community College, and Roosevelt School District, implementing an environmental education grant that will teach STEM, create new local economies, improve family wellness, teaching environmental stewardship, and revitalizing neighborhoods of South Phoenix and Mesa, Arizona. He's a visionary, a thinker, a doer. His mission is to harness the power of sustainability to solve a world problem. And in case you did not know, and I didn't read it in here, um, he is also in his spare time of all the stuff that he does, he is on the board of the Phoenix Green Chamber. Welcome, Dr. Brooks, to Food to Love. I am so excited to have you on our show. As I said earlier, I could talk to you all day, but we only have an hour here. So tell us, what inspired you to get to get your Ph.D. in wildlife and fisheries? Good morning. It's good to talk to you as well, my friend. <clears throat> now, first, a small update. Um, remind me to, to update that, that, that resume there. Um, I'm no longer with the corporation called Right Track. I now have my own corporation uh, called NXT and I'm all, and also one, one more small update. I'm no longer the vice chair of South Mountain Village. I'm now the chair of South Mountain Village, Ooh, and we can talk about that later too. So, th- so thank you. Now, uh, your first question was uh, why did I decide? What inspired me to do this? Um, my background is an interesting one to some people, and uh, to others it's quite boring. But um, my my father, my, my father was a pastor, and uh, he's no longer with me, unfortunately, but he was an extremely educated man. He earned two doctorates. You know, I, I remember when I got mine, uh, he said, son, I'm proud of you, but I have two. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, in fact, you know, one of his greatest achievements was, was this thing called Head Start. You know, he was one of the intellectual minds that created uh, the program of, of Head Start, they're still helping millions of people around our country even today. But uh, my father's activism, he was a friend of Dr. King. Um, uh, he, he moved this, this, uh, this state uh, toward a more equitable um, treatment of people um, as a leader in the civil rights movement. Um, uh, he was a powerful pastor in, 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 with a wonderful church. I mind you, I'm biased. On the other side of the coin, sounds like you have good my, to be. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> On the other side of the coin, there was my mother. My mother was a scientist. Uh, she, uh, and there's a term now <clears throat> that's called um, a hidden figure. Okay, hidden figures are are minorities um, uh, who, back in the 50s, when she was doing her major work. Uh, were hidden. Um, in fact, there's a whole movie about this now that you, that you can look up about, uh, about young. You, you've seen it? Absolutely. Okay. It's one of my favorites. I well, don't buy many movies, and that was one of them. 
Well, th- thank you. Well, no, they were not. And that movie is about hidden figures in aerospace, but they were all over the place, not only in aerospace. My mother was was in medicine, and um, before you can cure a disease, you have to grow a disease in the laboratory. And uh, there is a major disease that we still have. We have there is no cure for it called valley fever. You know, if you get it, you just got to work it out, or some folks, it treats them very, them very badly. And they're still trying to find a cure for this thing. Um, after all these years, she was the first one to actually grow it in the laboratory, to get it to grow. No one else could do it. She figured it out. And so much of the research that they're getting grants on today you know, is founded on, in part on her work from, 19, from the late 1950s. Um, she left that because the biological controls in laboratories at that time we would consider outlandish today, and she did not want to take the even possibility of bringing home uh, that disease to her bouncing baby boy, which was me. Oh, at yeah, time. absolutely. Absolutely. I had so a friend we, that passed away from uh, valley fever. I had another one that lost oh, a lung, so it's a very serious deal. Yes, yes it is, and, and I'm so sorry. Um, so between daddy's activism and mama's science, uh, they, that created me. And so um, in combining those two, um, it, my, my mother was also a, a, a botanist, and it was she who suggested that you, know, you have a purchase for growing things. I always had as a child. Why don't you go into um, agriculture, agricultural biology? And it, it was actually she who brought me the first article I had ever seen on fish farming. And after that is all history. Well, that is fantastic. What an inspiring story. And I have to know more about you now. I have to know more about your background. I know about stuff I hear from you from the Green Chamber and other things we talked about, but I have to know more about your back, your backstory too because that is just a fantastic story. Absolutely fantastic. So you brought up fish. So let's talk about fish. So okay. what, are the, what are the differences between farmed and wild-caught? You hear a lot of people talk about Wild caught, now you have to pay attention to which ocean it comes from because of the pollution and that farmed is not as good for you because they don't give them um, um, good, good food to eat. So let's just start with that. Let's just start with what is the difference between farm and wild caught and what would the concerns be um, in either case? Okay. Now, right now, I have up in front of me on my handy-dandy computer screen here a graph that is shows the most important issue between wild catch and and fish and and farm and farm fish, and that is numbers. Uh, the oceans are a mess, uh, quite honestly. But that's a wholly separate. It's a, a related issue. But first, there is the ability of fish in the ocean to reproduce. They can only reproduce so fast. If you catch them faster than they can reproduce, their populations begin to decline, so it's basically fishing out of fishery. In fact, if you remember a fish from the 1980s called uh, Orange Ruffy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's making a comeback now. Okay. Well, it is now because they fished it out, <laughs> okay? They figured out, they figured they, this wonderful orange fish that everyone loved was actually a bycatch. Now, a, by, a bycatch is a fish they were after one kind of fish, but these caught these other ones, and they figured out how to use them, and that Americans liked them. Okay, but they didn't know was that these fish were that they were catching were thirty years old. <laughs> okay, they they, oh, wow. they reproduce very slowly. 
And so that's why they disappeared for a while because they fished out the fishery, okay, um, because they were catching them faster than they could reproduce. And, and so right now, as far as what's called a sustainable fishery, that is they're catching fish as fast as they can reproduce so it remains the same, that fishery got them out, topped out, excuse me, in about 1990. We've, we've caught the same amount of fish from the ocean since about 1990. And now when we're talking about, about um, fish, these are huge numbers, okay? We're talking about millions of tons of fish. So the ocean-caught fisheries have, top, have topped out at about, uh, about 90 million tons a year. But the total fish fish uh fish and seafood intake by people is I uh, see this is a two thousand fourteen graph, so I'm just following the line. It'll be up somewhere around hundred and seventy million tons of fish. So where's all this extra fish coming from that we're demanding for world for the world population? Farms. In fact, looking at the graph, by now, two thousand eighteen Half the seafood that we eat comes from a farm. It's going to have to because we cannot because we can't get it from the ocean, right? I mean, there's there's more exactly. demand than the environment can provide. Exactly, and if we're going to feed nine billion, ten billion people in, in not all that long a time, that means since the oceans can produce no more. And since the oceans are getting to be more and more of a mess, unfortunately, with all the plastics and pollution and things that we just want to dump out there and, and, and oil and just all of this now being filtering into our environment, which is so very sad and will take decades, if not centuries, for the ocean to clean up all by itself, even it's if we all, stop yeah. all this nonsense since today, okay, where are, we going, where are we going to get that 180, 200 million metric tons of food people will be demanding or even more it can only come from farms and so that's um a lot of the call today for we need more wild caught fish they're not there <laughs> okay makes you know, it, it'll makes be it, great makes, but when they're not there that makes total sense. so what would we be looking for if we're looking at farm to fish should we look at it certified sustainable farm um how how, how do how does the average the average Joe and Jane at the grocery store figure out what the best fish is for them without having um, fish that are fed garbage or um, getting toxins from the ocean wild caught fish. Actually, I, ha I have an answer for that. And there's this incredible site that is perhaps the world's authority on healthy fish. Uh, it is out of the uh, Monterey Bay Aquarium. Now, that sounds silly, the Alba Aquarium, but the Monterey Bay Aquarium is one of the world's premier research sites. I wish I could get a job there. That's a wonderful place. In fact, you've actually seen it in a movie. Um, do, do you remember Star Trek Four? Yes, yes. You know, with, with the whales, that was filmed at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Um, oh. I, and I'm not promoting them, but I really enjoy visiting that location. But never, nevertheless, they have a site called the, called the Monterey Seafood Watch. Let me say it again, the Monterey Seafood Watch. If you uh, link to that site, they give you scientifically backed up research and recommendations on healthy fish. Not only what, which fish are healthy, but where, which fish coming from what location are, are healthy or not healthy. 
And so you can, the, the layman can go there and look up almost anything and get their recommendations and why as far as the quality of fish. I believe that you suggested I get that app, and I think I do have that app. I'm going to have to look into it. And I will absolutely, I, I, on, the I, podcast, I, on the podcast, I will post the link to get the app and the site. And then if you send me a copy of that graph you've got, I'll post it so our viewers can see it too. It's fantastic okay, to you. know. Fantastic. I don't, I don't think there, there's an app. So it's just a, a straight website. But, uh, but nevertheless, do go there, yes. Well, I'll tell you with everybody in their iPhones, maybe we'll maybe we'll create a trend and we'll get them to create an app for everybody, so that when they're in the store, they can look and see what they what fish they want to have, just like I use the Environmental Working Group app to figure out uh, the best uh, organic produce and and uh, so on of anything that I buy. I, I I run it through that app. So these people are really up on things, and and if they don't have an app, I'm I'm certainly that I'm certain that give them the idea and they'll make one because they are really really astute. It sounds like it. I just totally, I think that's fantastic. And you mentioned a lot about the ocean pollution. And so I've heard, you know, if you're going to get salmon, make sure that you get it from the Alaska region because there's less pollution there than there is in the South Pacific and, and so on. So is the regions in the ocean, did that make a that make a difference as to the health of the fish as well? In, in all honesty, I would love to say yes or no, um, but that's, very, that's still very difficult um, to determine. Uh, for example, the salmon move. Okay, <laughs> don't stay in That's one true. place. They're always returning. So, and so they return, but in, but in those years when they're out wandering around the sea, they wander around the sea, and so they are exposed to all kinds of things. They don't just sit there in Alaska. Now, you know, I cannot say for certain, no, uh, as far as the, you know, the the, the that an Alaskan wild caught fish is better than a. A Washington-based wild caught, I cannot say that because I do not know. But I do know that as an overall issue, uh, the fish, our, our, our seafood coming from the ocean have, are being exposed to more and more toxins, more and more issues like de- degrading plastic because plastic never seems to go away. Um, even when it falls apart, there's still tiny microscopic um, exactly. uh, pieces of plastic you know that the fish are ingesting or the whales, unfortunately, because that kills them. And so it's very difficult to say what particular location is better than, than the other. Um, again, you would need to rely on a site like Monterey because they do have as much data in their, uh, in their reports as possible as to the quality uh, of, the, of the food that they're recommending to you. Um, but just in general, uh, if you simply remember this, Anything that we flush down the drain or that ends up in the in, in the rivers here, now you know Phoenix, believe it or not, has seven rivers, but no, but they're all dried up because we use the water. Um, every now and then there's a flood, and, and it's been a long time since there's been one. But, been, yeah. but whenever, you know, but back in the past, it used to happen frequently. In fact, back in the past, the rivers used to flow. But um, most everything that goes down the drain can if not stopped in some manner or form, can end up in, in the ocean. And this is creating an enormous problem um, that's, that's growing, that's getting a lot of attention about plastics. I would encourage uh, anyone to Google that subject. Uh, there's um, that's there's a, that's every a great other reason. chemical. That's a great thing for people to think about, too, is that they whatever they throw away, it could possibly yes. end up, it doesn't just go to the landfill. Whatever they throw away ends up somewhere. And if it doesn't end up in the land, in the land, in the ocean, just think about 
throwing away that someday you could be eating that or your children could be eating yes. that. I'm huge on conversion um, and by um, a part of a Green Phoenix uh, business partner. And so I, I divert most of my oh, almost Almost, I'm trying to get to over 90% every month, but I get around, hover around 90% of landfill diversion every month. So that's, oh, that's, that's actually another Thank why. You. That's another yeah. why for people to not throw, just throw stuff yeah. away. Fantastic yes, point. And, so listen, we're going to take only, a quick break. We're going to take a quick okay. break, and then we will come back and talk some more about. Um, like I said, I could just talk to you all freaking day. Yes, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back with Dr. Brooks and hear some more in just a few minutes. Are you a speaker who has an inspiring, insightful message that will help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? If the answer is yes, we invite you to become a pro member of the eWomen Speakers Network. We have over 500,000 women connected through 118 chapters spread across North America. We're looking for speakers to share their wisdom and breakthrough ideas. Go to eWomenNetwork.com and join our speakers network. The benefits for pro speakers are incredible. Go to eWomenNetwork.com. Too busy to cook? Don't want a grocery shop? Take back your life. Let Witnessing Nature and Food provide you and your family with eco-conscious, organic, tasty, nutritious meals. Headed by internationally trained chef Jennifer Johnson, you will enjoy the helpful food your body craves. Choose from meal prep, meal plans, catering, or cooking class services. Just go to witnessingnature.net. Witnessingnature.net. It's what's in the food that matters. Eat organic. Witnessing nature in everything. Welcome back to our Food to Love podcast. I am your host, Chef Jennifer, with Witnessing Nature and Food. And again, I'm still so excited to be here with Dr. Brooks and have him on our show today. So when we left off before the commercial, talking about uh, fish and toxins, I have one more question for you, Dr. Brooks. Let's talk about fish that comes from cold water, extreme cold water, maybe the North Atlantic or uh, the North Atlantic versus um, the Caribbean or, or, or so on. Is there a difference in toxin levels based upon those types of fish, whether hot cold water or, or hot water, warmer water? Again, I, 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 w- I wish that I could give you that data, but I, you know, if, if I'm going to be on a forum, forum like this, I would prefer to be absolutely accurate, and I don't have that data in, in front of me. I can provide that to you later, and I'll be, I'd be glad to so you can share it with your, with, with your listeners. Um, oh, absolutely but, wonderful. Uh, no, but the warm water fish and cold and, and cold water fish. The one one thing I can say is that uh, the cold water fish tend to be higher in the so-called omega threes. Apparent, um, and but this this is largely because the fish that we catch um, are carnivores. You know, the, the fish that tend to be higher in omega threes tend to be carnivores, and, uh, because you know, the omega the the, the uh, the that, that that particular fatty is it fatty acid? I'm sure. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, anyway, okay, and it, it 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 comes up through the food chain you know, um, in a thing called bioconcentration. You no, know, that means that you no, know, if there's one molecule in uh, in 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 a, in, a, in a tiny crustacean, and the fish has to have ten of these um, uh, little crustaceans to survive, as an example, then that. That molecule is now concentrated in that fish. There are now ten molecules of that 
particular material in that fish. And so uh, it, it goes through the food chain like that. So if you get a top carnivore like a trout, about about, about a trout and salmon are basically the same fish. You know, many of them are in the same, same genus. Uh, a steelhead trout is uh, is um, virtually the same as a rainbow trout. You know, as far as species is concerned. But if you eat, but as they as these things concentrate up through the food chain, we like to eat these top carnivores, and so they tend to be high in these particular chemicals. But that's the same process that causes other things to be concentrated in them as well. Uh, there's the same process that causes mercury to be concentrated in co- top carnivores, exactly the same process. And so, um, you know, but um, so that's the, one of the major differences. And it's not a warm water, cold water thing. Is it, is it, it is a carnivore versus a non-carnivore. Now, of course, now this can go into, you know, to catfish and tilapia as far as freshwater fish, you know, and ver- versus trout. Trout would be higher in omega-3s naturally than a tilapia would because a trout is a top carnivore, while a tilapia uh, feast, uh, is a herbivore. It eats plants largely. And so the, that would be uh, that's the differences or one of the major differences of why one has a, a high level of omega-3 and the other ones don't. Um, I have to say that I, I never quite thought about fish being carnivores versus non-carnivores. So that I think maybe a lot of our listeners hadn't thought about, hadn't thought about that either. And um, I think that's probably a, a good point for people to remember that not all fish are carnivores. Um, and that's what they, you are what you eat. So you are what you eat. Since you are what you eat, then fish obviously are what they eat as well. Yes, indeed. Um, we're gonna, our next question is going to be. I'm sorry, did, I didn't mean to interrupt you. So, did we finish that? Because I just want no, to. No, 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 no. I'm, I, I'm good. <laughs> okay. So I've talked to a lot of people. I've heard a lot of. Uh, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there about anything. After all, Google is the gospel, right? And everything. Anybody can yes. write. Anybody can write a story, right? So I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of or talk about the fact that they don't uh, want to eat tilapia um, because it's a bottomy feeder or it's not not good. It's mostly farm. That a lot of the farms don't feed them anything but junk, which you know, back to you are what you eat. That's that's important. However, I know uh-huh. that you have a very different opinion because you have a lot of tilapia and freshwater shrimp, which I didn't know until I read your bio. Um, and you do a lot of aquaponics and, and organic veg. You're involved in organic vegetables as well. So I know as an entrepreneur in your in your business that you have a lot of experience with this. So why don't you talk to us about tilapia and maybe the Maybe the myth that's associated with it. Okay, I know that that particular bit of dis- disinformation is really getting out. I was at a seafood restaurant, and uh, I won't say which one, and uh, I was sitting there, and and there were a couple of customers up, up, up uh, at the bar uh, who were discussing <laughs> this in quite a bit of detail, and I was quite um, surprised and disappointed. Uh, because I, I saw a meme the other day and it said, don't eat this mutant fish. Um, it, it, it has no skin. It has no bones. You can't overcook it. It doesn't exist in the wild. I mean, I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> That's okay. like the zombie apocalypse you know, is coming. <laughs> really, really, no, no. It, this is a fish apocalypse and it's called tilapia. Um, the, um, no. uh, let's, let, let's first, let's, let's, let's tell folks you know, what a tilapia is. A tilapia is a cichlid, okay, and that's a certain kind of fish. Um, there are cichlids in, in South America, there are cichlids in Africa, and but it's an African cichlid, and it's a certain um, type of fish. It's, it's flat, and uh, it's flat, and it lives in rivers and in ponds, 
And uh, again, it is it, all tilapia come from come from Africa. It, uh, we've been eating tilapia for three thousand years or more. You can go to a Egyptian wall paintings and see tilapia perfectly drawn. <laughs> The, the Egyptians were, were farming what was called the Nile tilapia. There are hundreds different or more different species of tilapia, and so but there are four major ones because they're the four largest. And that's the, the, the Nile tilapia from from uh, uh, the Nile, Egypt. There is the blue tilapia, largely from Israel. Uh, there is the uh, Wami. Uh, uh, tilapia, and there's the Mozambique tilapia, which are both an equ- equatorial fish, while the uh, other two are, are more of a northern latitude. And so um, those are the four major species that, that we eat, but there are a whole lot more. Uh, St. Peter's fish from the Bible, okay, that, you know, the, the, that, I think they changed the species name. I think it's uh, Saratheridon Galea now. You can look, look it up to be, to be exact. But that was a tilapia. <laughs> okay. Uh, so wow. we've been eating this fish, this fish for a long time. You can look up St. Peter's fish and, and see what comes up. Tilapia. Okay. So we've been eating this fish for a long time. But what happened was, about, I think it was about 100 years ago, um, maybe a little less, um, science discovered that, that these four species had the potential for fish farming. And literally, they have been hybridized and all kind of things. Hybrid hybridization is just you know, a crossing of fish. You put one fish in, one species in, and another species, and if they breed, no, that's a hybrid. Uh, this is not genetic engineering. Uh, there, are, there is a genetically engineered salmon that is seeking to be um, for, for certification, but there are no genetically engineered tilapia. Okay, any tilapia that's out there is just a matter of a plain old-fashioned crossbreeding that we've been doing for as long as man has been able to crossbreed anything. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, um, so these fish have been around a long time. They're not a mutant fish. <laughs> uh, like you're not going to have a skinless tilapia apocalypse? No, no skinless tilapia <laughs> apocalypse. You, no, when, you, when you buy tilapia, you still got to skin the thing if, uh, if you want to, although they are really easy to process. They're a wonderful fish to process. But the reason why people like to grow tilapia is that they're an easy fish to grow. That is true. They're an, though some animals are more easy to grow than others. And so uh, if you're – now, there, like now plants, I have nothing right? wrong hmm? – Just like plants, right? Some plants are, some plants yeah, are easier yeah. to grow than others. Exactly. Now, no, I have, uh, I am a person who uh, who believes that we need to eat fish, but I have, have nothing against folks who want to eat plants only. I mean, some vegan diets can be extremely good for you. Again, nothing, nothing again. I don't want to put that out there up front. But if you're going to eat fish, um, the, the tilapia is one of the easiest fish to grow, and so that's why it tends to be so so. Um, so prevalent is also why it seems to be of the lowest cost because, again, it is the second most popular fish in the world as far as aquaculture. Um, the most popular fish in the world is, believe it or not, carp. Now, uh, as Americans, we don't tend to eat carp, and that's just a cultural thing, but they're a part of the world that love carp. And, Absolutely. And they do very well with carp. And, you know, but, the, but the second most farm fish in the world are tilapia. Now, um, as far as individual farm practices, though this is like any area of of um, of uh, agriculture. You no, know, there are people who follow all the rules and do their absolute best to ensure that you have a perfect or as close as possible perfect product coming to your table. And there are others who just skip and don't 
and just try to cut every corner so they can make a whole lot of money. So that's why we well, there, there there is, need there's that in every aspect, though, right? There's that in every aspect of the world, right? You have to verify exactly. who your suppliers are. I work with vegetables and uh, meat because of the fact I get to meet the farmers and I know what they do versus those guys that want to cut the corner. So it, that's no different than anything else that we're involved in. Exactly. And that's why I'm personally so glad to have an organization like Monterey that takes the time to discern who's skipping and who's not and then give you that information. So I am, uh, I am a proponent of tilapia. Now, again, tilapia, because they eat plants primarily, are not high in omega-3s, although we are working, uh, science is working really hard to change that. Um, and also one, but that, by the way, that skips to something else I just want to mention real quickly. Uh, one of the problems with aquaculture, any kind of fish, uh, it is that uh, th- there was a, a process of going out into the ocean, catching tons of little fish, taking them into shore, grinding them up, and turning them into more fish feed. That's not sustainable. And so what we're working on real hard is getting the fish out of fish feed, okay, so that we can uh, make fish feed out of some kinds of plants that provide the same amount of nutrients as it would if you were to be eating a fish, a, a fish food with fish in it so that we can eliminate that so that the oceans can better recover. And that's a, a major force of, of uh, uh, direction in research and also um, uh, entrepreneurship uh, today you know, and through the whole ag tech movement, ag- agricultural technology movement, to try to provide feeds that don't have fish in it so that we can solve that problem. Well, that you bring up a really great point. So yesterday I went to my very first ag tech meeting. Here in Phoenix, I went to a meeting over at the Arizona Coalition, um, and they had it was a the talk was a view from the farm. So they had four farmers up as panelists, and they talked a lot about how technology um, helps them in agriculture because agriculture, like food service, and I'm in food service, has a high turnover rate for employees. And they need to be able to automate certain things in order to be able to bring healthy food um, or food, you know, incorporate food safety into um, the food that we eat. Um, and uh-huh. bring, but that means that they have to be able to pick, they have to be able to track that all the way from the seed to what is what the uh, people buy at the farmers market or at the stores. So let's talk about um, your involvement with ag tech. And I think that um, you also were one of the first people as a part of the extension system right here in Arizona or in, in the well, country. And so let's talk well, a little bit well, about well, that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, okay. I'm sorry. Um, the, 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 the feed is, is breaking up just a little bit. Um, AgTech is a, it's a very in, uh, interesting thing. Now, um, you mentioned two separate things, and, and so please put a pen in the – uh, extension service. We definitely want to come back there because that, that's one of agriculture's best kept secrets. Uh, <clears throat> Ag tech, uh, we are going to be have to. There are going to. There's going to be nine billion, ten billion people in the world, uh, and not in the lifetime of you know, by the time my my children are my age, um, uh, in, in their sixties. Uh, there's going to be ten billion people in the world. How are we going to feed all these folks? Um, and that's just you know, it, it, with current estimates as far as world population increasing, because um, er, everybody got to eat, 
and we are already using a good percentage of the arable land, uh, of, well, not just arable, we're making it, but, um, but this, uh, as much of the land that we can possibly farm, we're already using m- most of it. And so the only way to improve that is to improve the, the amount of food that we can produce per acre land, and that's going to take technology. And so that is what ag tech is. That is the, the technologies that will allow us to grow more food in the future. And these things can be quite extensive. You know, uh, one, one of the, uh, the biggest ag tech markets is in Israel because they're doing a lot of work there. And Israel is very similar to Arizona. But if, uh, if you look yeah, at these to, sectors. To, yeah, I've been to Israel several times, and they are, I would call, the Silicon Valley of um, Europe or the EMEA or, or the EMEA region because they just have whether it comes from um, where it comes from uh, airport security all the way down to ag tech they just have such a vast knowledge and desire to help make everything better and I just love all my, all my friends in Israel so I'm glad that you bring it up so and so um, uh, ag tech, you know, can be in food commerce, in the food e-commerce, how we move food around. You know, as an example, uh, here in Phoenix, uh, we, if uh, we take the national public radio number that each person uh, in the United States eats about, on average, 2,000 pounds of food a year. Now, I personally eat a whole lot less, but let's just say uh, that is accurate. Um, Phoenix itself, when you include all 4.6 million people, I think, what, what, so what would that be, about 6 billion pounds of food a year? I can yep, do the yep. calculation here real, uh, real, real quick. But, uh, none of that food is grown here, <laughs> okay? And, and so we have well, very little of, of it is grown here at this moment, and we want to change that. But uh, food, um, that means that all that food is all these folks are shipped in here, and because of the nature of the market, we have a three-day supply. So if the roads break down, you know, if, if something happens to I-10, um, we got a three-day supply of food. Now, uh, if, you know, I-10 going down is not, uh, not very likely. We did have a problem once a few years ago where a flash flood took out part of the road yeah, going into yeah. California. You know, but um, that's a whole lot of food, and how do you move that food? How do you prepare that food? How do you, 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 you store that food so that it that, that it is perfectly food safe. Because food safety is an, a, it's a huge yes, and yes. very important issue. You know, and okay, I so only deal with a portion of it. Yeah, I only deal with a mm-hmm. portion of it in my business for food safety because I do it from from the farm to to the um, to the consumer. So yeah, it's it's huge. And when they talked about it yesterday, they talked about they have to track it all the way from the seed mm-hmm. to the store, which includes transportation, cool storage. Uh, washing, everybody that handles it, all 12, you know, if they have 1,200 employees, and that's what they, they have to account for those 1,200 employees and how it was handled. It's just it's, it's a huge overcome. And um, I think one of the big things that they requested the most is uh, in ag tech is to give them, not just give them data that they can figure out, that they have to look at and try to figure out what they're supposed to see, but really they can preemptively give them information as to um, where they need to, what problems they need to attack. And that's what the ag tech industry is. So there, there are product-based based companies, but there are solution-based companies. And the solution-based company is the new thing. Solution-based companies are focused on how do I solve, provide you a product that solves your problem. And so what the farmers just laid out the other day, and I'm so, 
sad that I missed that meeting yesterday, uh, is that these are the problems that we have with calling upon you, the ag tech industry, to, to provide us products that solve this problem so we can move on. Because the farmers out there are not designed to, do, to be researchers, okay? They want to take a product and they want to grow food. And, and that's great. So uh, ag tech companies need to provide them the resources that they need. So uh, in uh, there's that's food commerce, but then there's, here in Arizona there's a huge thing with water because we are very, very – we're in a drought still right now. And the reason why we seem to have so much water is that we're really, really good with handling water here in Arizona. I mean, we've, been, we've been that way since the, the 60s or forever, literally. Yep, but we yep. need better and better technologies to handle water so the farmers can use less of it, um, it and, but totally still grow more crops. And then there totally are drones understand. and robotics, you know. There's just so many yep. different things, bioenergy, but also this is area that I personally work in, okay, which is called uh, – um, oh, my um, – there is hey, a particular hold, term that we use for it. Let's hold on to that thought for a second and come back and talk. Let's hold on to that for a thought for a second and let's come back and talk about it. Let's go to a quick commercial and then come back and talk about water because we had a huge meeting at the Green Chamber last month about Arizona's water and and, uh, and so on. So that is a huge passion of mine as well. So hold on one second. Let's go to a quick commercial and then we'll be right back. Like I told you guys, see, isn't he just, we could just talk to him all day long, but we only have an hour. Do you feel like you're drowning in administrivia? Do you have a podcast you would like transcribed to repurpose as a blog or even a best-selling book? Rhonda's Virtual Office is the answer to the freedom you crave so you can get busy doing what you love. Let Rhonda's Virtual Office give you the relief you need. Visit rondasvirtualoffice.com and get some peace of mind today. Rhonda's Virtual Office is the go-to transcription service for EWN Podcast Network. Okay, we're back. And I just did a quick commercial and didn't do my other one because I wanted to get back to talking about this ag tech and water <clears throat> and farms in Arizona. And like I said, when we first started the show, um, we just learned a ton from, from Dr. Brooks, and I told you we could talk all day. So let's go back to this ag tech portion and um, our water um, because uh-huh. I, two things that I learned from one from the meeting in uh, last month at the Green Chamber is that agriculture, even though in Arizona used to be the number one consumer of water with all the cotton fields and so on, as we have migrated off of that and a lot of the farmers have become more efficient with drip systems and so on and using a lot less water, um, and, and maybe this is even an off subject, but um, it's Ag tech still, or agriculture still will be the, if we have run into a drought situation, they will be the first ones cut off um, from water. And as we're trying to promote uh, locally grown organic food for our local residents here, or just like say local sourcing in general, um, I I have a problem with that. So just talk to us about how uh, ag tech is so important in making sure that um, water is tracked and, and so on. And since it's, it's also the, the, I think, the largest contributor from, um, of inborn illnesses, too, so that they have to, farmers all have to worry significantly about the health and safety of the water that they, that they farm with. 
Yes, yes, indeed. Um, again, the food, the food safety. What is your water source? You know, um, uh, is there are there any contaminants in it that may end up on your vegetable crops? These are enormous issues um, that um, we're now calling upon not just um, food safety issues as far as um, the the plans that that you use to ensure that these things don't happen. But we're calling upon more and more technological solutions to help us with that. And that's a, a major area of research. It's a major area of, uh, of the business development, and uh, that will help us to have a safer food supply as time goes along. Uh, the, the water issue is, is critical across the world now because with uh, changing climates, uh, the water is not going to be where you want it and how you want it. It, it, it may be uh, in larger amounts in some locations with flooding. There may be droughts you know, where there were not droughts before. All of these things are shifting right now. So that's a major issue that farmers have exactly. to deal exactly. with. Exactly. Exactly. And we don't want to end up in a situation like Cape Town, South Africa's in. Oh, yeah, that's a big one right there. That's a perfect example about how climates around the world are shifting. You know, we are we kind of are kind of insulated from um, from the effects of drought, so we, or we have been since this one started in about 1993. I use the term 1993 because that was the last time the Colorado River reached the sea consistently. The Colorado River no longer reaches the sea, uh, and that's an, that should be a telling thing for anyone. All that water is used up between Arizona, California, Colorado, and Mexico, and a couple of other states. It's gone, and that has caused enormous problems down in the Gulf because the estuary was the source of what it was a breeding ground for many of the fish species that they used to to harvest you know down south in Mexico and in, uh, in those waters those species are now declining tremendously because of the no, there's no Colorado estuary anymore there's no water goods going in so uh, the, the issue is how do we preserve our water here? And there's so much technology and also practices that are now being developed so that we use less of it. Um, the Colorado River itself is our uh, is our um, a major source of water for Central Arizona, but we had to build a canal from basically Lake Havasu all the way to Tucson in the 1960s that our leaders back then had the wisdom to think about that literally pumps water 3,000 miles, 3,000 feet uphill uh, to get it to Tucson. And it's an amazing system, but it can only work when there's water in the Colorado to use. And if you've gone to Las Vegas anytime in the near future and just look out at the lake, you see yeah. this enormous thing called bathtub rings where the water has declined to a point where now they are – really concerned that they may have to call a drought shortage sometime in the near future. It hasn't happened yet, thank goodness, but the possibility definitely is there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, I, I get concerned that they still, um, we have some old laws in place or some old rules in place that, ag- that agriculture will be cut off first. And especially since we're wow. still doing things like, we're still doing things like not implementing rules around uh, um, local things like California has that you go to a restaurant, you're automatically served water and half the time that people don't even drink it. So I think that it should be an on-demand, an on-demand um, service piece. And there's just so many other things that we need to do and we need to be aware of as a culture just to, just to protect the resources that we've got. Well, the, the rule that you uh, – I agree completely. The rule that you're referring to goes back to the original Colorado River Compact uh, that made the decision as, as to who gets a certain amount of water out of the Colorado River. 
And um, because Arizona, in, in order to get that compact through so that California would not veto it, uh, Arizona is what's called the junior water user uh, on the Colorado. That's so that, again, we could get this uh, Central Arizona Project Canal built. Um, and part of that you know, was that if there is what's called a shortage, uh, certain people begin to get water cuts first. And the decision was made back then to uh, preserve the water for the um, for the people and and to begin to decline that on on agriculture. And that those rules are still in places very compact complex and I would encourage anyone to look it up and and, and read the, the details of this uh, but we're dancing kind of on that edge right now again a, a shortage has dangerously not been dancing. Yeah. dangerously dancing, dancing. Yeah. it was created when yeah. we had less than a million residents in Arizona and now we just over at this year top 7 million exactly now Phoenix Phoenix is, is kind of lucky in this because all the water in Arizona except for the, the water that flows through the Colorado River naturally, all the water in Arizona ends up in Phoenix. That's why people have been farming here for 5,000 years. All these rivers end up right here. They combine between uh, the east side of Phoenix and down in Buckeye, and then they flow down the Gila to the Colorado. That means this place has always been a wetland. Uh, that's why all the streets in Phoenix are north, south, east, west. Those are edges of the old farm fields. So um, this place is well, always been I've been here 30 years yep. and I didn't know that. That makes yep. total sense, but I love the grid because it's easy to drive here. <laughs> me, me, me too. <laughs> um, but and, and, and no, the Salt River project was not built to you know to you know, get water out to pump through pipes. It was meant to uh, irrigate fields. Exactly. And, and there was a ton of unburied canals when I first moved here, and now they're closing up the canals. And I have to believe that it's probably helping with some of the evaporation pieces as Arizona's gotten warmer and warmer. Uh, that is exactly the reason why they did uh, cover the canals um, to prevent infiltration because those unclosed canals were not necessarily concrete lines and, and to e prevent evaporation. Um, and it's also changed the environment here in Phoenix because I, when I grew up, we had all open canals. And so we had a lot of wildlife here in the South Phoenix where I live, yeah, yeah. Um, rabbits and toads and all kind of things. When they closed the, the, the canals, uh, that wildlife went away because there wasn't any more water. And now the fields, now Phoenix is 43% empty space. And there are lots of, of people that are still farming and urban. Uh, but those things may go away also uh, with a thing called highest and best use. What's the best use of the land? And sometimes it might not be a farm, which takes us into the whole urban agriculture question because we do really want people to be able to farm in our urban areas. And I'm very proud of the city of Phoenix for really pushing this. Absolutely. I have a couple of speakers coming up that are going to be talking about urban farms. Hopefully, I can get permission from um, the um, ASU to be able to be one of those speakers. And then I have um, um, Greg Peterson from Urban Farms that's going to participate as well. Uh -huh. Now, I know that you have an event coming up at ASU. We are running short on time. Like I said, I oh my goodness. For, for Anyways, coming up at ASU on March 14th. Tell us about that, because I know these guys, if they are here in Arizona, I think they should sign up and go and talk to you more and listen to more of what you got to say. Okay, surely. Now, my area of ag tech, and I'm an ag tech developer, and I also teach at one of our junior colleges at Mason, uh, is an area called um, um, aquaponics. So it's, it's one of the 
Uh, it is an ag tech subject. Uh, it's a method of growing food and fish uh, all together in a very precise manner that uses 90% less water, as an example, and grows a lot of food at the same, same time. The issue is that the city of Phoenix, in its 2015 general plan, um, now all cities in Arizona have a business plan. Um, I was blessed to be one of those who helped to write the city of Phoenix's business plan called General Plan, and it was accepted by 96% of the population in the vote. Part of this was a push for for urban agriculture, and the city has taken this to, to heart uh, with the new uh, Oliva farm, farm in every city park, changing rules and regulations so people can more easily farm in the city and in the backyard, trying to figure out what's going on with water, etc., etc. Um, now, my, new, my technology is comparatively new, and my talk is going to be how did we begin to integrate a new technology into a, a full city's urban farm system, a full city's urban food system. And so I'm going to be tracing how aquaponics, which is my area, actually was accepted and moved into this urban farm system to the point where the city of Phoenix now has websites that are beginning to say that aquaponics is one method of addressing the issues that we have here in Phoenix in urban agriculture. And I really want to thank the city for doing that. Well, don't tell everybody what you're going to be talking about because they need to come and see your see your talk. Oh, sorry. Um, well, they got, they got your details. <laughs> so let's just really quickly wrap up with, if you had one message to deliver to our listeners, what would it be and why? If I had one me- message to deliver to our, okay, to learn as much as you possibly can about food. Food is that thing that we have some control over. You can determine what you want to eat, you can, but you, there's so much misinformation out there. Find those locations like Monterey that can give you the accurate information on whatever kind of food that you eat. Try to eat sustainably. That means now the term sustainability has been so messed up by people. All it means is to be able to let to live or last for the long term. So it has never changed. So find foods that will allow you to your, you and your family to eat cleanly, to eat fewer chemicals if at all possible, but also foods that as they are produced don't destroy the environment so that we can have food, so that your grandchildren can have the same kind of life that you do. So, yep, learn so we can all live happy, food. fulfilled lives, right? Learn about food, exactly. especially marketing companies. Don't believe all the crap you see in the ads on the TV. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, uh, it makes me sad when I see commercials that say things like milk naturally from a cow. I'm like, really? No kidding. <laughs> but it doesn't talk but, uh, about that. Also, that it doesn't talk about what the cow ate or where it grew up or any of that stuff. That's true, but it also brings me around to you. And, and I've been so pleased and to see this kind of things that you're doing to promote healthy, sustainable food. You not only prepare it, you, are, you also teach. And that is so badly needed, as such as with a program like this. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Brooks. Thank you so much. You know, next week we are going to have another great guest. Um, so everybody, thank you. Help me, help, help me thank Dr. Brooks for joining us today. And if you are ever in Phoenix, Arizona, or if you live here now, then you can attend any of the Arizona Green Chamber meetings as my guest, if you would like to say, you know, Chef Jennifer is your guest and you can attend for the, uh, the uh, guest price. 
And you can see Dr. Brooks on March 14th at ASU. Which ASU state? Which ASU um, area are you going to be at? Downtown Tempe, okay. or are you going to be no, up here at no, Skyfall? At the School of Sustainability on main campus, Google School of Sustainability ASU events, and you will find the registration form on page um, on that page. Um, I, my talks tend to, to fill up. I'll add the link. I'll add the link to here too, so that people can that people Thank can you. find it. So tell us how, sure else, tell us how else. Oh, absolutely. So tell people how the else they can find you, connect with you, follow you. Are you on Are you on Instagram, Facebook, um, LinkedIn? I mean, tell them how to get a hold of you. The uh, two two places. Uh, one, my website is nxthorizon.com, and that's nxthorizon.com. And I also have a I'm on a number of Facebook pages, uh, all regarding aquaponics particularly Arizona Aquaponics. That's not my page, but it's a great page. And I have several that I manage on my own, such as mainstream aquaponics. And so I can be found there. But nxthorizon.com is the primary location. Fantastic. And for Witnessing Nature and Food, check us out on our website, witnessingnature.net. Also, like us on social media, and we will absolutely love you back. Bye for now. Thank you. Take care. Too busy to cook? Don't want a grocery shop? Take back your life. Let Witnessing Nature and Food provide you and your family with eco-conscious, organic, tasty, nutritious meals. Headed by internationally trained chef Jennifer Johnson, you will enjoy the helpful food your body craves. Choose from meal prep, meal plans, catering, or cooking class services. Just go to witnessingnature.net. Witnessingnature.net. It's what's in the food that matters. Eat organic. Witnessing nature in everything. Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Gotta get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.